Psalm 91, there's a lot going on in the news that's not being reported. There's a lot happening with Iran right now. There's articles if, if you want to do the search. But um, Mary Danielson's going to be on Stand Up for the Truth tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock talking about some of these things. So I want to pray for Mary. I would encourage you to do your homework. You might have to dig around a little bit uh, to find uh, some of the, the websites. I brought it up at Men's Prayer yesterday. I wrote uh, three articles. And uh, we took out one of Iran's major generals last week. And as a result of that, there's quite a few forces making their way towards Israel as we speak. I heard rumors of it. didn't really think a whole lot of it. But then on, on Friday, uh, we found more information on it. Anyway, she'll be touching on that tomorrow, and that's 9 o'clock on, on Q90. It's uh, called Stand Up for the Truth. Just an encouragement to tune in there. Psalm 91 this morning, we just read the whole thing, but Paul read the, the part that is recorded for us in Luke 4 in the New Testament. So let's go back to Psalm 91 this morning. As we make our way through God's word, verse 9. <clears throat> because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high your habitation, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways. They shall bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Psalm 91 is another example of uh, this book that you have in your lap this morning. As it says in the New Testament, the volume of the book is about Jesus Christ. And here we are in Psalm 91. And what we have here in these verses, they are quoted, but interesting twist. And who quotes them this morning? Because it is the devil, Lucifer, who actually quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus after he's baptized in the Jordan and filled with the Holy Spirit. One of our goals this morning as we teach through God's word is the reality of the spiritual warfare that exists on a personal, and I want to emphasize this, on a personal but also on a global level. And we could really get sidetracked on this and talking about, um, for example, I'm thinking of uh, three spirits that are released at the Euphrates River in the middle of the tribulation period. Jude talks about demonic spirits that are held in reserve for the day of judgment. could take on one, two meanings, that they're going to be released during the tribulation. The Bible clearly teaches that in Revelation 9. And then there's those that still exist that aren't incarcerated in the pit. They certainly existed during Jesus' time. One-third of his ministry was casting out demons. And I don't think there's enough uh, spoken uh, about this subject. So I'm grateful one of our safety nets in chapter by chapter and verse by verse study is you, you pretty much have to tackle it all. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the devil quoting scriptures because I can't get around it because that's what Psalm 91 is all about. Another reason, as Paul exhorted the Corinthian church, he wants us to be aware of how he operates. So he says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should get an advantage on us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Unfortunately, today, I think much of the church is very ignorant of spiritual warfare. 
that once a person is born again, the battle begins. And so our goal this morning is to look at Psalm 91. Let's go back to verse 1 and just read the first two verses. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. Reassuring, comforting words of a dwelling place, a refuge. A refuge and a fortress are places needed for protection and security. So it's sort of a hiding place that we can go to to feel secure. Well, it begs the question, if that's necessary to have it, uh, what are we having a refuge from? And in this case, who? And the answer to that is given in the next verse, 3, where it says, Surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. The Lord, when you're in a place of refuge with him, and you're in his care, then you're being protected from the snare of the follower and from the perilous pestilence. So opposition is what's being implied. In this place, he has been referred to as the snare of the fowler. I like the wording because fowler is um, a reference to Satan, and the idea is being tripped up from a snare or trapped, like um, when we were kids, we used to set these boxes up and put a string on them and, and bait them and wait, wait for any creature or bird to come by. And, you know, you pull it and you catch the bird. Let's well, sort of turn around here where the bird is trying to catch you from the snare of the fowler. The psalm is about Jesus and the devil. Psalm 91 is about the Lord Jesus Christ and Lucifer. Satan's goal, Jesus said that Satan has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus said to Peter, because Peter was sort of the spokesman, Peter was uh, sort of bragging about the fact you don't have to worry about me ever letting you down, Lord. Not me. They don't call me Rocky for no reason at all. I'm with you. I'm your man. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Interestingly, Jesus knew what was going to happen before it happened. Peter was saying, don't worry about me. I'll never deny you, Lord. And he says, well, as a matter of fact, um, this night I know that the devil's going to actually enter Judas Iscariot. I know you're going to deny you ever knew me three times. And um, it's going to break you. When Jesus uh, saw Peter deny him for the third time, Peter broke down like a little baby and wept. He couldn't believe what he did. He couldn't believe that he failed in his strongest suit, courage. That was his suit. And he failed in it. And the Lord knew it. He also knew that Peter would come back around. He says, when you have returned to me, then I want you to strengthen the brethren and let them know that you have no strength, that whatever gift or quality you think you have, the Lord will let you fail probably in that suit just to prove that you can't do it on your own. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? So he'll let you fall in the, in the very area that you think you got down. Let's follow this by going to Matthew chapter 13 in the New Testament. The idea of a follower and, and a bird and Jesus' parable that he taught on this in Matthew 13. Using symbols in the parable of the sower. 
It's a story about God's word being taught. It's being taught here this morning. People are, are listening to it here. It's being live streamed. And the fact of the matter is, as people hear the Bible study, it's going to be received in different hearts, different attitudes. And what the parable basically explains to us is when the word of God is taught, the different grounds that are represented in the parable of the sower represent how different people actually hear it and receive it. But more importantly, and where I want to go with it this morning, is also when the word of God is taught. This is really our weapon that we have as Christians. And so the enemy recognizes the word of God as a threat, and so he, his attempt is to undo. So I was thinking of Wednesday. It was cold. And I thought, well, at least we're live streaming. And Thomas comes in and says, we're out. Some guy with a backhoe down in Dallas, Texas, took out the whole system. But I'm glad to hear it's up and running this morning. Parable of the soils in verse uh, 1 of chapter 13 of Matthew. Verse 2 says, A great multitude were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat. I like that. Sort of laid back. Jesus was sitting and the whole multitude was standing. So if you don't mind, I'm going to get a stool for the rest of the study. And uh, you guys stand this morning and I'll, I'll sit up here. You don't care? It's biblical. <laughs> But then he spoke to them this parable, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. Now, this generation just doesn't farm like it used to. We have a handful of farmers in the fellowship, but not many. Most of us are, have different jobs other than sowing, you're, 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 unless you have a garden or something. But the idea is just taking seed out of a bag and flinging it. As this sower was sowing his seed, some fell by the wayside, side of the road. And the birds came and devoured them. I'm not going to read the other ones. The other ones was uh, uh, it fell on stones and it grew up, but it didn't have any depth. That fell away. Some fell among thorny places where there was a lot of roots and nutrients uh, kept it from growing so it didn't produce any fruit. But the last one fell on good ground and uh, it yielded what it was supposed to. The word of God accomplished what it was supposed to and it brought forth fruit. And so we as Christians are to bring forth fruit as we hear God's word. We're to grow in the, in the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. That's the idea. Well, the first one here I want to concentrate because it says the birds came and devoured them. And uh, we see the seed here, that would be the word of God. We have four different kinds of grounds. That is your heart or those of us taking it in, four different kinds of people. I want to concentrate on the fowler that we're to take refuge from. The bird here is explained to us, if you look over to verse 18, they didn't understand the parable. They asked Jesus to explain it to them, so he does. In verse 18, he says, therefore, here I'll explain the parable of the sower. Anyone who hears the word of the kingdom, all right, the Bible, and does not understand it, then comes the wicked one. Well, now, all of a sudden, we have uh, an understanding that the bird who stole the seed is none other than the fowler, the wicked one, the devil. He comes and he snatches away that which was sown in his heart. So more insight. The ground now is the heart, 
And the bird is none other than the enemy. He has come to steal God's word away from you. Lest, as the Bible says, faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God. He doesn't want you to grow in faith. So he'll do everything he can. Um, but Satan also not does, doesn't only do this individually. But he also does it on a larger scale in the church as a whole. So individually he will try to get you away from the word of God. But also in a, in a bigger sense, he's trying to enter churches to get them away from the word of God. Let's stay in the same chapter and go to verse 31 to a different parable. And it's only two verses long. It's called the parable of the mustard seed. And we'll read it and I'll come back and we'll look at it. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in the field, which is indeed the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than a herb and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Well, we have a problem here. And let me throw a big word out called expositional constancy. And that basically simply means when it comes to the parables, if a bird represents wickedness in the devil in one parable, and if you go to another parable and you find a bird in there, then it means the same thing. So if we read this here, we have a problem. We have two problems. First of all, mustard seeds do not grow in to big trees. Somebody want to say amen? I've entitled this this morning, Unnatural Branches. That's the title of this message this morning, Unnatural Branches. What is happening here is unnatural. But worse, second, there are birds that are in the branches. If we have the kingdom of heaven the word of God going out and becoming a place of shelter, well, we have a problem because uh, we have wickedness or evilness infiltrating the church, getting away from the word of God and replacing it with some scripture. Like I said, we're going to see Satan quoting scripture this morning. So this is where we have to be wise and discerning and really know our Bible. How many of you realize that this week is called Evolution Weekend. I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you knew that was going on. Quite a few, actually. Um, Well, it is the 13th through the 15th. This is called Evolution Weekend. There's a letter out there. It's called the Clergy Letter Project. I never received one, so I, I just heard about it. But I did a little research on it. And basically what it is is a letter that goes out to want to know where pastors are at in their churches when it comes to the subject of evolution. Where do you stand? Well, evidently it was a survey and there was 462 congregations, 45 states, and 13 countries. There were 13,800 that um, hold to evolution and are teaching it from the pulpit. I call that birds in the tree, an unnatural branches. Let's take it a step farther. I say it's blasphemy because the Bible, God's word, teaches just the other. And so that's happening. This is evolutionary uh, weekend, the clergy letter project. If you want to take it a step farther, it's unnatural. We should not be teaching evolution 
in the church. Give me a big amen on that one. We teach God created the heavens and the earth in six days. I mean, it's clear. That's what the Bible teaches. We shouldn't have a problem with any of it. The second thing that was happening this week that I have to uh, make mention of, I'm going to put it up. This is from the National Catholic Reporter. And um, I'm going to show you a film clip. I'm just going to read a paragraph. It's too small for you to read, so let me just read what Pope Francis stated from Vatican City this week. Christians are not made in a laboratory, but in a community called the church, Pope Francis said. At his weekly general audience Wednesday, Pope Francis continued his series of audience talks about the church, telling an estimated 33,000 people that there's no such thing as do-it-yourself Christianity or free agents when it comes to faith. And then he said, Pope Francis describes as dangerous the temptation to believe that one can have a personal, direct, immediate relationship with Jesus Christ without communion and with the mediation of the church. All right? I said it, and now I'm going to say this. This is also blasphemy. And I know I'm making some people uncomfortable right now. I'm not going to apologize for that. When you tell me that I can't have a personal relationship outside of going through the Catholic Church and what they call transubstantiation, I'm afraid that contradicts this book right here. And it's time for some of us to get a little bit more bold with this. You say, Dwight, it's going to cause friction. It's going to cause division. just reminds me of the verse that Jesus says, don't think I've come to bring peace. I haven't. I've come to bring a sword. I've come to bring division. Over what? Over the Bible. There's a two-minute clip I'm going to interject in this message this morning before we get back to it, so let's play it. It's only two minutes, and it's basically um, what I just said in an interview. Let's go ahead and run it, guys. Since Pope Francis's election in March 2013, he's made more than one anti-biblical comment which drew immediate public backlash and caused him to restate his position. For example, in September 2013, Francis stated that, quote, even atheists and gays can go to heaven just based on their own conscience, end quote. However, as reported in the Catholic News Service on June 25, 2014, Pope Francis stated to a public audience his most outrageous and satanic statement yet. He said, quote, it is dangerous for anyone to believe that he or she can have a personal, direct, and immediate relationship with Jesus Christ, end quote. Without question, this directly opposes the New Testament and what all of its born-again writers emphatically teach and instruct every person to do, namely to accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior and to know Jesus in an immediate and personal relationship, all starting with that individual's direct encounter with the risen Savior himself. Literally, the Pope has publicly disavowed and thrown out the personal eternal life experience promised as good news in the New Testament. The Pope went on to say that no personal relationship with Jesus is possible outside of the Pope's and Catholic Church's mediation. Once again, and as he is near.com overwhelmingly proves, the Pope's arrogance and outrageous beliefs and actions are an exact match to the Bible's Antichrist of today's end times, who 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 says, will oppose God and God's word and will exalt himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped. Sorry, gang, I just can't let that one go and look the other way and bring it to your attention and have you know that it's out there. 
That is um, birds in the church, and this is unnatural branches. The Bible clearly teaches that you must be born again, that there's only one mediator between uh, God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. You have direct access to him. All you have to do is ask. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to participate in um, transubstantiation, having Jesus crucified again. Boy, it's sure quiet in here this morning. Satan's attack on Jesus at the beginning. McGee says this about the parable of the mustard seed. This parable reveals the outward growth of the organized church. The church and the world have become horribly mixed. There has been real integration between men in the church and men in the world. They live and act very much alike in our day. The Christian should be salt in this world. The birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Years ago, I heard another liberal preacher interpret the birds as being different denominations. He spoke of the Baptist birds and the Presbyterian birds and the Methodist birds and all these church uh, groups as being birds. That, of course, is a contradiction of our Lord's own interpretation of the birds in the first parable, meaning the parable of the soil. We can be sure that the birds in the parable of this discourse do not speak of anything good, but rather they represent evil. The birds are the ones that took the seed which fell by the wayside. The Lord said they represent the enemy who is Satan, and I'm afraid that Christians today um, is a mustard seed tree filled with a lot of dirty birds. I just like the way McGee puts it. Chuck would often say, be careful with the parables. Make sure you understand what's being said here because most commentaries don't get the parable with mustard seed uh, correct at all. Let's turn over. We see here the unnatural branches, but let's go to where it's actually quoted in the New Testament, and that's Luke chapter 4. So let's make our way over to Luke 4. This is an interesting week for me because it brought back some Memories from long, long ago when I first got saved. Luke 4, beginning in verse 1, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now this was after he was baptized. After he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and then he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And being tempted 40 days by the devil... Those days he ate nothing, and afterwards, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written. So he acknowledges that he's there to fulfill Scripture. So he says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. All right, that took care of Satan on that one. Then the devil took him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, All this authority I have given to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I'm going to give it to whoever I wish. Boy, there's a lot of doctrine here. There's a reason he's called the God of this world. There's a reason that there's pain and suffering and sorrow. And A lot of people say, How could a loving God allow such things in this world? Well, the answer is, this world has fallen. It's going through a redemptive process because of what Jesus did on the cross. And eventually, the curse is going to be lifted when the Lord establishes his kingdom. 
Somebody want to give me an amen on that? But until then, he's um, still in charge, influencing much of this world. Therefore, the devil says, if you'll worship me, it's all yours. You don't have to do any more ministry stuff. You can have it all right now. I'll just give it to you. Just get out and worship me. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. And then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And here's our text, Psalm 91. The devil's quoting it, for it is written. Can you imagine Satan saying that? He will give his angels charge over you to keep you, notice a comma, and in their hands they will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. You don't have to worry about being cast off here. The angels, it's written, will bear you up. And let me just say, lest I forget, that this is not being quoted correctly. This is the passage that the devil quoted, and it's interesting thing is that Satan knew the psalm, that it applied to the Lord Jesus. He knew something a lot of theologians and professors don't know today. During the Lord's temptation, Satan said, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee, and he left out the words, and to keep thee in all thy ways. Look at it here, to keep you, but he left some stuff out. What does Revelation say about adding to and taking away from? Oh, it can change a lot. And the Lord then just said, it has been said, and shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. It's interesting to me at the beginning of a Christian's walk, when the seed is first being sown and you're hearing the gospel for the first time, don't you wrestle with it? Is that true? I mean, my life, am I going to have to change? And all these thoughts are going through your head. Should I, shouldn't I? I don't know if I should. And, and either accept the word of God or you decide not to. But in that, the Bible teaches there's a war that's going on, lest you would take it and believe it. Well, here he twists it. Let's just say the Lord yielded. And um, he allowed Satan to give him the kingdom now and nothing else. Well, First of all, verses 14 through 19 would have never happened because now the devil goes away. And I'll quote this later, but it says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Jesus was resisting and he took off until a more opportune time. Interesting wording. So now Jesus begins what God had called him to do. But the enemy tried to be a fowler and trip him up and not fulfill his ministry. So, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, and he came to his hometown of Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place for it was written, so he actually didn't just open and start reading. He was looking for something. It wasn't a book like we have today. It would have been a scroll. He would have laid it out, and he'd been looking. He's looking for Isaiah chapter 61, and he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal up the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, period. And then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say unto him, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What if in all your ways was being implied here when you go back to the temptation that Satan was quoting Psalm 91 and the Lord yielded to the temptation? Well, this would have never been fulfilled. It would have been over at that point. Okay, you want the kingdom? You want this world? It's yours. You can have it. But he, did, he left out, he took away from the word of God in all your ways. What are all your ways? Well, this had to be fulfilled. And he says, this is being fulfilled. This is an Old Testament prophecy. And it's being fulfilled today in my hometown of Nazareth. I'd like to take a deeper look at it and actually have you turn back to Isaiah chapter 61. Find something interesting here. Isaiah 61. Let's read what Jesus quoted in the beginning of his ministry, this is what he would have turned to. He would have turned to Isaiah 61, and then he would have, as we read it, he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. In Luke, there's a period at this point. In Isaiah, there's a comma. And you say, so what's the, what's the big deal? Because the next verse is, and the day of vengeance of our God. You see, that was not fulfilled on that day. It isn't fulfilled till this day. So in Isaiah 61, we have a comma. And in Luke chapter 4, we have a period because everything up to that point was fulfilled that day. What is the day of vengeance of our God? Well, that is a seven-year period of time called the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 6. It is yet future. It has not yet been fulfilled. That's why Jesus stopped. That's why he closed the book after a comma, and they put a period there. And he says, this much is fulfilled today, but there's more coming when you go back and read the rest to proclaim and the day of vengeance. God has a day of vengeance? Oh, yeah. He's being really patient right now with this world. As we watch it go down the toilet week after week, getting worse and worse. Some of the stuff that uh, we talked about in men's prayer yesterday that they want to get into our public school systems. I won't get into it, but you're aware of it. There's a war going on for the souls of our, our kids. And it's getting not better and better, it's getting worse and worse. And parents have to, to uh, uh, wrestle with it. But let me just share a personal story. Of how I, This brought a lot of memories for me. Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit and then going into the wilderness and being tempted. I'll tell you uh, something that happened to me. Um, the devil messed with my mind. And let me put a picture up on the screen. To try to, this is a book. It's called God's Forever Family. It's uh, the Jesus People Movement in America. And, uh, of course, Calvary Chapel was a big part of it in Southern California. But 
We, are, we had our own version of it here in the Midwest, in Milwaukee. And uh, me and my friend Steve Schumerth, um, Steve was, Steve's dad was Coach Schumerth in Oshkosh High, his well-known coach, and I was really good friends with Steve, and Steve and I both became believers, born again. And uh, we're trying to figure things out, and, and we, I was intrigued with uh, these Jesus people down in Milwaukee because they looked like me. I had long hair and a beard. They had long hair and beards, and, and uh, they were passionate about Jesus. So we used to go down there, and I was uh, learning a lot in those days. I didn't know a whole lot biblically. I wasn't rooted and grounded, as you would say. But you see that black man there? That is the man that baptized me in water and the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think it was April 11th, 1972. And I received the gift of tongues at that time. And in leaving this place, it was called uh, the Jesus Christ Powerhouse Coffee House. And they're very, very effective. They moved from there, and they ended up in Chicago, and that's where Jesus People USA came from. But they started in Milwaukee. I actually invited the Resurrection Band up to Oshkosh before they were called the Res Band. Some of you really old-timers will remember the Res Band. Uh, well, they came up and, and did a concert in, in Menominee Park down there, and I got to be friends with them. But the day I was baptized and filled with the Spirit. We were driving back from Milwaukee up to Oshkosh, and we saw, I saw the sign that said, Holy Hill. And I thought, Holy Hill? <laughs> I said, let me out of the car. I wanted to be alone. I had this unbelievable experience that had happened to me, and I don't want to talk to anybody. Was, I identified with the Lord. He went into the wilderness. I walked from Highway 41 to Holy Hill. For those of you who've been there, you know it's a, a beautiful place. I had just received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I said, I read about it, but now I have it. But then I thought of another verse. And it said, um, um, whosoever commits the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, his sins will never be forgiven in this life or in the world to come. Well, what does that mean? I got the Holy Spirit now. Does that mean if I swear at the Holy Spirit that I'll never, ever be forgiven now that I know this? And my head is really getting messed with it. I mean, big time, as I'm making this walk (laughs) from Highway 41 to Holy Hill. And I just said to myself, you did it, didn't you? You did it. You blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And God's word can't be broken. So you know what that means to you? You're lost forever now. I remember ending up face down in a ditch, completely screwed up, because I didn't know the simple scripture, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. I wasn't committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but I was a baby Christian that didn't know anything, and the follower was trying to trip me up. So anyway, I end up at Holy Hill, and I'm in there, I don't know what I'm doing, and I go up to this book rack, and here is C.S. Lewis's book called The Screwtape Letters. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. Others of you don't. This was written during World War II. And I'll just read a page of of what this is all about. It is a senior demon called Screwtape who is trying to teach his nephew, a younger demon called Wormwood, how to mess with people, how to steal the word of God away from them. I'd never heard of such a thing before. 
Oh, he wrote it for his grandkids so that they could relate to spiritual warfare on a level like the Chronicles of Narnia and have the gospel in it. And he's one of the most brilliant theologians, Christians of our time. I'll just read a paragraph. But it didn't take me long to figure out I had not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And God used this book uh, to square it all away with me. This is um, screw tape, and here's a paragraph that he's writing to his nephew Wormwood. This amateurish suggestion in your last letter warned me that it's high time for me to write to you fully on the painful subject of prayer. You might have spared the comment that my advice about his prayer for his mother proved singularly unfortunate. This is not the sort of thing that a nephew should write to his uncle, nor a junior tempter to the undersecretary of a department, powers and principalities in view. It also reveals an unpleasant desire to shift responsibility. You must learn to pay for your own blunders. The best thing where it is possible is to keep the patient from serious intention of praying together. All right, the lights are coming on. There's a real devil, and now that I'm born again, he's going to try to trip me up. That's what I got out of reading this book. And again, I didn't have um, any idea about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But as long as we're there, some of you might be saying, well, what is then the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And I'm really glad you asked me that question this morning. So let's go to Mark chapter 3. I always tell people if they're worried about if they've committed the unforgivable sin, not to worry about it. Proves to me they haven't. In Mark chapter 3, picking it up in verse 22, the Pharisees and Jesus were talking about demons, and one in particular, not wormwood or screw tape, but Belzebub. And the scribes, verse 22, chapter 3, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he's Beelzebub, by the ruler of the demons. There's a hierarchy again. He casts out demons. He can only cast out demons because he's got a demon himself with more authority. So he called them to him and said to them in parables, well, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, and he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his goods. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever sins and blasphemy they may utter. But, He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because he said he had an unclean spirit. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is the only sin that God can't forgive? That's really what is uh, being spoken about here. The only sin that cannot be forgiven is simply this. It is the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. That's the only sin that will never be forgiven. This is what John 3 verse 17 says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We're familiar with John three sixteen. We all know that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, we all know that one. It's in the end zone of a lot of football games. 
But then verse 18, he who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. What is that? That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. After you've heard the truth and you decide to reject it, there's no way you can be saved. That was the Spirit of God that was speaking to you from the the Word of God that says Jesus is the only way you can be saved. And if you harden your heart to that and you say, I'm not going to accept that, you're making a free will choice. But if you do, John 13, 18 says, you will be condemned who does not believe the gospel because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Wow, Dwight, heavy stuff this morning. Demons, spiritual warfare, birds in the church. What are we supposed to do with all that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question too. We'll close with Ephesians chapter 6 this morning, so let's make our way back there. We leave here this morning. We go back to a busy week in a busy world. We see it falling apart. Jan Markell's latest newsletter says it well. She says it's not falling apart, it's falling together. The pieces are falling together. I like that, because that's what's happening. As we see it falling apart, no, it's really falling together. In Isaiah, we're in men's prayer in Isaiah 37, talking about the Assyrian Empire and the day that the Lord took, took it out in one night. Isaiah came to Hezekiah and says, don't worry about a thing. I'm going to put a hook into the jaw of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and I'm going to bring him down to you. And that's what happens. And Hezekiah prays, and that night, one angel took out 185,000 Assyrians. Wow, one. Peter said, Jesus said to Peter, put, put away that sword, Peter. Don't you think I could pray right now and ask the Father to send 12 legions? <laughs> If one can take out 185,000, can you imagine what 12 legions could do? So I don't worry about it. And so what caught my attention was, you see, when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he went home, he was killed. And the very next thing that happens, we have the fall of the Assyrian Empire and the rise of the Babylonian Empire, all at the same time. But my point with all that is, it reminded me so much of the capital of... um, Assyria is Nineveh. They were the most brutal people in the world ever. They were feared. They were ISIS. That's why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. It would be like saying, okay, we're going to go preach the gospel now to ISIS. (laughs) It's not exactly what I feel like Jonah. Say, let's let's go to Tarshish instead, Lord. I don't particularly like these guys. All right? Nineveh is where ISIS is right now, okay, with the places that they're taking. And Iran is on a march right now as I speak, coming to Israel. Ezekiel 38 says, I'm going to put a hook, right, in a jaw of Russia, and I'm going to bring them down. Ezekiel 39, verse 1 says, he's going to take them all out, five, six of them. And there's a lot of similarities between what we read in Men's Prayer yesterday and what's unfolding right now. The hook in the jaw is what caught my attention. So what do we do with it all? Just to have that information and go about our day? No. Ephesians 6, verse 10 says, Finally, my brothers. Here's the real war going on. Psalm 91 is quoted by the devil in Luke chapter 4. And the Lord withstood him with what? The word of God. So you're in a war, a personal one, and the follower's going to try to trip you up. The church is in a war. There's all kinds of stuff coming in doctrinally into the church that shouldn't be in a church. 
Finally, brethren, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having to done all to stand, then stand. Stand therefore, having your, your loins girded with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, take the shield of faith, wherein you'll be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. That's all Jesus did. Satan came with the temptations, and the Lord took the faith of the word of God, put it in proper context, and he resisted. And finally, it says, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You guys know you got your swords? Here's your sword right here. I hope it's unsheathed. I hope you're practicing with, with it regularly because it's, it's the only thing that we have to stand against the wiles of the devil. The sword is the word of God. Jesus says it is written. Well, the devil can say it's written too. And there's a lot of religious people saying things that aren't biblical in very, very high places. Wonder where, where all this is headed? Well, I know that the Bible says in Revelation chapter 18, verse 17, I'll tell you what, let's read the last verse and we'll close with it. Praying always with all prayer and supplication and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Revelation chapter 18, verse 17, the whole chapter is that we're headed towards a one world religion. The last verse 18 tells us where that headquarters of this world religion is going to be. And I'll read verse 18. And the woman that was riding the beast whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. John wrote this in 96 AD. The the city that ruled over all the other kingdoms of the world happened to be Rome. And that's where this religion, one world religion, is going to be centered according to God's word. Interesting. How do I know that? Well, it's because I got a sword and... I use it, and I read it, and I believe it, and it helps me when he tries to trip us up. Now, if you're a young believer like I was, you're going to be confused at times. But, you know, the Lord has his ways of just kind of putting the right thing in your path at the right time. And he'll do that for you, and he'll, he'll go before you and help you as you work through your whatever situation you find yourself in. The good news is, We have a refuge, as it says in 91, a fortress, a high tower. And greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. The gates of hell will not come against the church. It won't be done. Amen? Let's stand and close the word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for prayer. Thank you for men's prayer and women's prayer. Thank you for our worship team. I thank you for your word. And Lord, this morning as we just make our way through the scriptures in Psalm 91. We see we have an adversary that your word clearly talks about. And we also know, Lord, that you've given us the equipment if we'll put it on and use it. They have discernment when false doctrine comes into the church. 
that we can discern it and excuse it or accept it. I pray for those who don't know your word that are being seduced today by false doctrine and false teaching. Pray for us here, Lord, that we just be grateful for your grace and we thank you for this time this morning. Pray bless your flock as they go out this week. In Jesus' name, amen.